two quick things for me before I pray. Uh, I just want to reiterate our life course starts this Wednesday. It's an opportunity to look into life with Jesus. If you've got anyone that you know who would be interested in learning about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, we still have, I reckon, about 50 of these cards out in the foyer. You're welcome to take lots and give them out. Secondly, I was starting a new series tonight on the topic of salvation and looking at God's work to save people from sort of start to finish. And there's a Bible study that goes with that. Um, some of you are in Bible study groups and you're going to be working that through. So your leader might have already got one or you might have already got one on the last two, last Wednesday when we all got together. If you didn't, there's 30 or 40 copies in the foyer. They look like this. If you're not in a Bible study group but you'd like to actually look at some Bible passages for yourself different to the ones we preach on on the same topic, that's a great resource. All right. I'm going to pray. I don't know about you, but maybe as that passage was read, you thought, whoa, that's full on. It's reasonably heavy. There's some challenging stuff here, and so my hope is to try and make sense of it and show you the beauty of it. Anyway, let's, let's pray. Oh, sorry, I should also mention, it's probably up there. Yeah, it's up there on the screen. Of course it is. Um, tonight, like at the topic of election is a really hard one. And so if you've got questions, if there's stuff that I say that's really unclear and you want to ask them, we'll, we'll set aside some time at the end uh, to have a look at some of the questions that you have and maybe give answers. I don't know. I'll try. All right? That's where we're headed. Let me pray. Lord, tonight we pray that we'll understand your word and see that what your word says about your choosing of us is glorious and beautiful. For those of us who really struggle with that, uh, help us to see the point and purpose of it. Help us to be encouraged uh, and help us to hold all that the Bible says together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I bought my wife Nat's engagement ring when I was 18 years old. And yes, we were very young. If you come to my house, like the common joke that people say is, did the judge have to sign off on that? Um, you know, because we were really young. But at the time, um, it was the most expensive thing I've ever bought. <laughs> and it wasn't that expensive. Uh, I grew up in Campbelltown. So, um, but here's the thing. I'm buying a diamond ring and I start to learn that there's more to diamonds than just a sparkly little rock. There's, there's like the size of the diamond. You know, how many carrots is a diamond? Well, <laughs> that's not even one. I think not even half. I don't know. It wasn't that big. But then there's also the color of the diamond. It turns out that you can buy diamonds based on color. And I don't mean red or pink, like how clear or yellow they are. They sort of get a little bit off colored. Not every diamond pops out of the ground perfect. And then there's also this thing called clarity, you know, how clear it is. And here's, here's the thing. A good diamond, when it's polished and cleaned not when it's been sitting on someone's finger for weeks and weeks and months and months with no attention, but a good diamond straight out of the jewellers, when you put it in the sunlight, the light just dances on it. Those things sparkle. I guess that's why people like them so much. And this, this series, my hope is to show you that salvation is a bit like a diamond. Um, by that I mean, yes, precious and valuable, that's, that's part of it. 
But more than that, as you look at salvation from different angles, as the light of the truth of God's word hits it from different angles, my hope is that you'll see your salvation sparkle in different ways. That you'll be amazed at the ways in which God saves. And my other hope is that unlike a diamond, which really, what purpose does it serve? (laughs) Like diamonds don't actually do anything aside from look pretty and make someone feel loved. Uh, the different ways the Bible speaks of how you and I are saved are actually thoroughly practical, really helpful for life. They change the way we as Christians live. And so my aim is not that we would all learn some big theological words. We're going to look at big theological words. Tonight we're looking at election. Next week, regeneration. We're going to look at justification, redemption, reconciliation, adoption, glorification. We're looking at big words, but I'm not really so interested in the fact that we all get familiar with big words as much as I want us to revel in what God has done for us to save us, what he offers to the world, and that we will see that all of it is actually an act of God's grace. Um, For those of us who are Christians, my hope is that you'll marvel a little bit more, that you'll just go, wow, wow. I didn't quite realise how great my salvation actually is, that it would prompt you to praise God and thank God and be more faithful to him as a result. And for those of us who are exploring faith tonight, I hope you'll start to understand what it is that God actually offers you and what he offers the world, that you'll understand what being saved means in all of its fullness, all of the sparkly bits of the diamond, so to speak, not just one. And so over the next, I think, six more Sundays up until Easter, we're going to look at salvation from start to finish. And today is the most controversial and the most misunderstood of the lot. If I'm being honest, today's sermon is the one that I'm probably most nervous about. It feels like the rest are all downhill from here. If we can get through Romans 9, the rest will be fine. Uh, And and that's the doctrine of election. Sometimes people call it predestination, and that, that makes things a little bit murky. But the doctrine of election is the idea that God chooses people, chooses people to save them. That before the creation of the world, God chooses whom he will save. Now, Christians have divided on how they understand this. Some people go all the way down one end of the scale, and they say, well, God chooses people. So there's no such thing as free choice. We're all actors in a play playing our part. Some say God simply knew who would choose him and he just chose those who would choose him. For many people this becomes a real intellectual wrestle where we try and understand how does it work that God chooses people and that I'm also accountable for how I live? How do those two things fit together? That feels really difficult. But at the heart of the wrestle is a very simple question. Is God good? Does he treat people fairly? Will there be people condemned who really, who really aren't deserving of condemnation? Are our choices real? And I think more personally, if you've been around the church for a while and you've read through Romans or Galatians, if you've read through parts of the New Testament and thought, gosh, that's a bit confusing, I think for many Christians one of the questions we ask ourselves is, okay, if God chooses people for salvation, am I chosen? How do I know if I'm one of God's chosen people? And are the people I love who aren't followers of Jesus, who aren't yet Christians, are they therefore not chosen or doomed? 
If you're not a Christian in the room, you, you might be thinking, oh man, am I chosen? If I'm not a Christian, maybe I mustn't be chosen. And how does God choose? So there's lots of questions to be asked. I think for all of us, regardless of where you're at with Jesus tonight, it's worthwhile thinking through what's the whole point and purpose of election? How, how is it supposed to actually shape people's life? And so here's what I want us to do tonight. I, I want us to start very briefly by looking at election in the Old Testament. It's not something that Paul invents and just pops up in the new. It's actually all throughout the Old Testament. We're going to spend some good time in Romans chapter 9 trying to figure out what on earth Paul is saying and isn't saying based on the context of the whole book and the section that Romans 9 is in. And then we're going to finish uh, with three applications, three ways that the doctrine of election should shape our lives. All right, So that's, that's where we're headed. Let, let's start with election in the Old Testament. If election is God choosing people for himself, for relationship with him, then we actually see it all over the Old Testament. Think about it. Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a 75-year-old bloke named Abram with no kids and says, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. He chooses him. And Abram gets a little bit impatient, waiting for that son that God promised him. And so his wife gives the maidservant Hagar and God says, no, 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 I'm not choosing Ishmael, I'm choosing Isaac, the son that's born to Sarah. God chooses Jacob and Jacob's descendants as the nation of Israel. He calls them his chosen people over and over again. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, here's what God says to Israel. He says, you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's pretty amazing, right? And then if you're wondering why he chose Israel, he he tells them. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so his choosing of a people in the Old Testament, specifically his choosing of Israel, is never for the purpose of keeping everyone out, but always for the purpose of drawing people in. Yeah, Israel is an exclusive people. There were things that you had to do to become an Israelite that were particularly uncomfortable, especially if you're a bloke. But the point of Israel was that they would be a light to the world, that as God saved Israel out of slavery, his fame would spread throughout the world and others would know and recognize that he was God and join his people. And his choosing, his election was always grace. Did you hear that? He didn't say to Israel, I chose you guys because you're so smart. I chose you guys because you're so powerful or pretty. He didn't say that at all. He actually says, I chose you because you were the least. God was concerned with himself getting glory from his saving of his people. And so he chose the weakest of the lot. Makes sense that when Jesus comes, he dies in weakness. It makes sense that the New Testament would say to you and I that Christ is at his strongest when we are weak, when his his strength is most powerfully at work in us as we admit that we need his help. And so God chooses weak and broken, sinful people. His choosing is an act of mercy and kindness. It's an undeserved gift. 
And so with that in mind, let's come to Romans. Um, For many, Romans 9 is a confusing chapter. Plenty of Christians don't like it. Maybe you've read it a few times. Maybe you've dodged it. Maybe you've just been confused by it. Or maybe you don't like what it says and so you, you just ignore it. Now, our belief here at, at, at this church is the Bible is God's word, all of it. They were called to work hard to understand what it says, to submit to what it says, to believe it and follow it. But we, we want to understand it well. And like anything, context is vital. You ever walked in halfway through a conversation that other people are having, and if you don't know the context, then what they're saying is just thoroughly ridiculous? You ever had that experience? Where you walk in and you go, what did you just say? (laughs) And they suddenly give you the context, and what you thought was ridiculous is now completely normal. Well, Romans 9 has a context to it. It's easy to do that with the Bible. Firstly, Romans 9 is part of a larger argument. So from Romans 9 to 11 is really one big argument that Paul is making about God's relationship to Israel and God's relationship to Gentiles and how those two things work together. But it's also part of a book. Often people read Romans 9 forgetting the first eight chapters of the book and ignoring everything that God has already said through those chapters, that Paul's written through those chapters And so they take Romans 9 completely out of context. The book of Romans is all about how God saves his people. And if you miss the context, I promise you, you'll misunderstand the text. You'll draw conclusions about Romans 9 that you shouldn't. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you a really quick, terrible summary of Romans. Terrible in the sense that it's not exhaustive, not in the sense that it's factually dodgy, all right? So here's my really quick couple of minutes summary of Romans. Paul is writing to a church he's never met, and the topic of his letter is the gospel. Now, gospel, if you don't know, means good news. It's the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that leads to the salvation of the world. That's the topic of his letter. In chapter 1, he says the gospel is God's power for salvation, that righteousness comes to sinners through faith. Basically what that means is sinful people like me and like you are saved by God, forgiven by God through trusting in Jesus. And in chapter 2 and 3, Paul just zeroes in and pounds the point that you and I, none of us are righteous, none of us seek after God, none of us on the basis of our own works can be saved, but God in his grace sends his son to save sinners. That Jesus on the cross bears God's wrath in our place. You know that word wrath? We often feel uncomfortable about it. We think often that wrath is when someone loses control and spews molten anger everywhere. You know what I mean? I often think of wrath in that way. It made me think of when my parents got really mad. You know, when my mum got really sick of the fact that my brother and I just did not clean up as much as she would like and you knew mum was on a wrathful rampage and you just tried to hide and ride out the storm. Anyone else? No? Um, please don't tell my mum that, Robin. <laughs> They're friends. Uh, but wrath in the Bible is never that. God's wrath is his settled opposition to sin. And so Romans 1 to 3 says all of us deserve God's wrath, but God pours it out on his son in our place. 
And from chapter 4 onwards, we start to get some of the implications of this gospel that is received by faith, trust in Jesus, not by works, not by being good. And it says that one of the implications, chapter 5, is peace with God. In chapter 6, there's a focus on freedom from sin and death. There's freedom from the power of the Old Testament law that condemns us. In chapter 8, we're told that we're now filled with God's spirit and part of his family. And in verse 30, there's this amazing promise of chapter 8. Have a look. If you've got your Bibles open to Romans 9, just flick back to chapter 8. It says that those whom God predestined or elected, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. It basically says that those whom God chooses, he will save fully. And then the end of the chapter ends amazingly. This is like bumper sticker stuff that people splatter all over their walls and it's worth it. It's amazing. It says in verse 37, In light of what Christ has done for us, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. This is an exhaustive list will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, if God chose you, you'll last to the end. That nothing in all of the universe, and just to be clear, not height, not depth, not powers, not evil, nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God that's there for us in Christ Jesus. And so chapter 9 is anticipating an argument, an objection. If it's true that those whom God chose, he will glorify, and if it's true that nothing can separate us from the love of God, the question Paul is answering then is how come so many Jewish people have rejected Christ? How come the chosen people aren't in the people of God? So many of them. Because if they're not saved, if God's chosen people of the Old Testament aren't saved, how can... How can we have any confidence that we're saved? How can God's chosen people of the new covenant have confidence in our salvation? Have God's promises failed? Did God promise some stuff and then go, oh, this isn't working. Take two. Start again. Control Z. Undo. (laughs) And so let's have a look at what Paul says. This is his response. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to race through some of these verses. But Paul says... He is grieved. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's almost saying, I wish I could die and be sort of excluded from the presence of God. I wish I could go to hell in order that my Jewish brothers and sisters could be welcomed into God's family. It's really, really strong language. He loves his people. He says that to them belong the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarch. From the Jews comes Christ who is God over all and blessed forever. So he's sad that the Jews aren't Christians, that many of them aren't saved. And now he's going to answer, well, did the word of God fail? Did the promises of God fail? And his argument is very clearly no, And that true Israel is not the people of God by race, but by grace. 
I didn't make that up. I read it in a book. It's quite clever. It's a nice little rhyme. The people of God are God's people not by race but by grace. The genuine people of God, it's always been that way, and he gives some examples. So he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all the children of Abraham uh, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's, he's making a historical reference. He's, he's saying, remember how Abram had another boy? His name was Ishmael. So being a descendant of Abraham doesn't make you one of God's people because Ishmael wasn't the child of promise Isaac was. Now, a well-educated Jew might go, but they had different mums. One had Hagar, the other had Sarah, and he anticipates that. And he says, verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, even more literally it's in the one moment because they were twins. So one sexual act with one man and one woman, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. He's saying it's the same with Jacob and Esau. Esau descends from Abraham, but his descendants aren't the chosen people of God. Jacob's are. Salvation is never about performance, but it's always about God's grace and purpose. Now, verse 13 is hard, isn't it? It says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Does God hate Esau? Well, Paul's actually quoting the last book of the Old Testament, a book called Malachi, to back up his point in verse 12. The reason he's quoting that is to prove verse 12, that God chose Israel, God chose Jacob and not Esau. And in Malachi, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness to Israel, his judgment of Edom. Here's what you can't do. You can't read verse 13 and conclude that God hates unbelievers. You just can't. It's not consistent with the rest of the whole book of Romans, let alone the New Testament. But rather we have a picture of God choosing a people for his purpose, for the world to be saved. In verse 14, Paul anticipates the objection that his readers that we might have. And that is very simple. If you chose Jacob and not Esau, is God unjust? And Paul's answer is no. Salvation has always been about the mercy of God. Esau, he was a bad dude. He was. He didn't think much of God. He intentionally married Canaanite women in order to make his parents angry. He wasn't a good guy. But here's the thing. Neither was Jacob. His name literally meant deceiver, and he spent the bulk of his life doing exactly that. The point is that people are saved by God's mercy. And Paul jumps to another Old Testament example to prove it. He, he, he tells us about Pharaoh and Moses in the Exodus. And the point's pretty simple. Just as God raised up Pharaoh to display his wrath and his glory, that many in the world would hear of him and be saved and come into the people of God, so too in exactly the same way, 
the unbelief of the Jewish nation in rejecting Christ, God has used in order that many, many Gentiles might hear and respond to the gospel. I think the challenging verse there is really verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It harks back to Exodus where God says to Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to let you go to start with. I'm going to show my wonders and then save you in the most spectacular way. And as you read through Exodus, that's what God does. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. You also read that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But God is clearly sovereign and in control of what he's doing. But what he's doing is for the salvation of his people. And Paul's saying God's doing exactly the same thing here. So here's the obvious question, and Paul anticipates it. Is God's judgment fair? Is it fair that God would harden Pharaoh's heart or anyone's? If God hardens a heart, how can they be culpable before God? That's what he says here. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And verse 20 for many people is one of the least satisfying verses in the Bible, one of the most offensive verses in the Bible. Because Paul, Paul's answer is, who are you to talk back to God? Who are you to tell God what he can and can't do? Now, the temptation is that we dodge that answer, isn't it? The temptation is we go, well, yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh also hardened his heart. And we start talking about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And we are going to do that. We're going to hold those things in tension. But I want you to let this verse sting a little. So you and I, we are not perfectly moral and just beings, are we? We're not. If the world ran according to your morality, there'd be some problems, wouldn't there? Wouldn't there? Even in small things, we're selfish. How many of you, like we don't have this rule in our family, but it's a good rule. Have you ever heard the rule that whoever, um, whoever cuts the cake doesn't get to pick which slice they get. Have you ever heard that rule? So if there's a bit of cake, this is a great rule, right? Yeah, I cut, if there's one bit of cake and you're going to cut it in half, you get one of the kids to cut it and the other one to choose which one they get because you know with my kids, if they are cutting the cake, they want the biggest possible piece of cake and they know that if they don't, if they don't cut it evenly, their brother will take the bigger bit with much joy. <laughs> But here's the truth. Who of us at some point in our lives hasn't cut the cake and taken the bigger bit ourselves and done it secretly and gladly? We're not even trustworthy in small things. Paul's reminding us that we're not so morally perfect in a book where he said no one is righteous, not even one. And we've got to let that sting. This passage is not saying you can't wrestle with God, argue with God, pray and say, God, I don't understand. It's not saying that at all. But what it is saying is that God, because he's creator, gets to decide what he does with his creatures. And that we, his morally corrupt creatures, should never assume the position of God. That he, the holy creator of the universe, is actually trustworthy. God is the one who's free to do as he pleases. And you know the reference to the pot and the clay? It's, it's kind of funny to imagine a potter working some clay on their table and suddenly the clay speaks and says, hey, what are you doing? 
I want it to be a fine vase, not an ashtray. No, we're not doing it this way. And Paul says, God as creator gets to do as he wants. I think the hard verse in that section is is really where it talks about vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. Some people think it's nations. Uh, I think it's pretty clearly talking about people, that vessels of of mercy are people who are saved and vessels of wrath are those who are not. You've got to remember that God doesn't treat people who reject him with immediate justice. And thank goodness, or we'd all be dead the moment we were born. But he will eventually punish. And it says here that the display of his wrath, his settled opposition to sin, will demonstrate his mercy all the more. I'd say many of us have had that experience where we see the brutality and ugliness of the cross and it makes us realise we're way more evil and wicked than we realise and then we go, oh gosh, his mercy and grace is so much bigger than I thought. And so the passage that Lockie read for us, verse 24, 5 and 6, Paul quotes Hosea and reminds us that many Gentiles are joining the people of God. Now, if you've got questions, you can ask, but let's just sum this up for a second. God chooses to show mercy to people. He elects people for salvation. All people deserve wrath because all are sinners. And people are only saved because God shows mercy and he is free to choose whomever he wants because he's creator. And he displays his glory. He displays it through showing wrath and he displays it through showing mercy. And for, for many of us, this causes problems. Like this is a wrestle, isn't it? It's hard because it seems fatalistic. Like people are born into this world and therefore doomed by God's will. And so some just avoid this chapter and just go, I can't deal with this. Some, they say, God's choosing of people is just looking into the future. He chooses those who will choose him. But you've got to then ask the question, well, if God can look into the future and work out who's going to choose him and who isn't, surely he can change the future? Surely he can change what people do? Some say that God won't violate our free will. Here's the the challenge with that. The Bible never says that we have total free will. It says that we have choice. It says that we are responsible, but total free will? No. I mean, in fact, God is the one with free will. Our freedom is limited. We're not fully free, are we? We're not physically free. We're limited by our bodies, some of us painfully. We're not relationally free. We're not completely economically free. We're not socially free. We're not even morally free. We're born sinners. Our personalities constrain us and shape us in all sorts of ways. We're not even genetically free. Gosh, we inherit things from our parents we would never choose for ourselves. You ever had that moment where you're like, I am like my dad? (laughs) Oh, no, right? It's true. See, we're not nearly as free as we care to admit, but we're far more responsible than we care to admit. We humans want to pretend that we're totally free and that it's not our fault, and we can't have it both ways. We are responsible, which means in light of what we've covered, and this this has helped me heaps, 
to think about it in this way. Every person who stands before God saved and forgiven will point to the choosing and mercy of God. They will say, I am only saved and forgiven because God chose to show me mercy. No one can stand before God and say, I made a good choice here. I'm a smart cookie. I did really well on this choice. Everyone else out there is stupid, but I'm really smart. And because of my great choices, I've been saved. No, no, no. Everyone who's ever saved will talk about the mercy of God. And every person who's not saved, though they might want to blame God, can't. They'll stand responsible. And the temptation for me as a preacher and a pastor is to try and fix the paradox that is God's control and sovereignty over history, that he chooses people for salvation and the other side of the coin that says you and I are responsible, that we're responsible for our choices. But Paul, in fact, the whole Bible wants us to live in the tension, wants us to live in the tension that God is in control and our choices matter and we are responsible for them. In fact, you even see it in this very chapter. If you have a look at the end of chapter 9, Paul tells us that the Jews aren't saved because they pursued a righteousness based on works, that they stumbled over Christ. So he tells us that the Jews weren't saved because they tried to earn right standing with God by being good. He doesn't say they weren't saved because they weren't elect. He actually lays the responsibility with them. They didn't trust in God's mercy. And as you keep reading this argument, you get to chapter 10, verse 9. I remember being a young, maybe in my mid-teens, reading through chapter 9 and 10 and thinking, what am I reading? And I got to verse 9 and I went, here's a verse I can understand. It says in verse 9 of chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's a picture of repentance. I'm not Lord, Jesus is. I'm going to turn from pretending that I'm the Lord and acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Paul says, repent and trust in Jesus. And that even in this section that's so strong on God's choosing of people, there is a call for all people to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. In fact, in verse 16 of chapter 10, he tells us that people don't obey the gospel and they're responsible for it. And the call on Christians is to share the gospel with people so they can hear because faith comes from hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, which means... The question, am I chosen, has a few answers. If you're a Christian, if you've turned from sin and you trust in Jesus' resurrection for your eternal life, the Bible would say, yeah, you're chosen. The only reason you could do that is because God chose you and showed you mercy to believe. To the person who isn't yet a Christian, the question, am I chosen, the only person who can answer that is God. I don't know. We don't know. But we know that everyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved, which means 
If you're not a Christian here tonight and you want to know whether you're chosen, the Bible says don't stew over whether you're chosen or not. Rather, it says turn from sin, believe in Christ, trust in him for salvation, and you'll be one of God's people. You'll be saved. Which means the question is not so much about election because it's a question that we often can't answer, but where you stand with Christ. Which means if you're here tonight and you're not a believer, could it be that God in his sovereign plan has you here tonight? for that very purpose, that you would hear the call to respond to what Jesus has done for you in his life, death, and resurrection, that he bore the wrath of God for you so that you don't have to. He offers you forgiveness and life. He's offering mercy. And the Bible does say that God chooses people for salvation. It also says that God freely chose to give his son to save all who believe. It's an offer to the world. He chooses to give the most valuable being in the universe to the world as an offer of grace and mercy. Now the wrestle with God on election is real. It's important because it comes down to the question of is God good? And as, as I've wrestled through this, there are two things that have really helped me because the temptation is to think God just dooms people and gives them no chance. Therefore, he's not a good judge. I think after you've let the sting of Paul's response sting for a little while and you go, yeah, that's right, I'm not God, I'm created, not creator. What's really helped me is two things in particular. The first is to remember the cross. Because you know what? The cross reminds me of God's love and goodness. It reminds me that it cost him infinitely to save anyone and show mercy to anyone. It reminds me that he is a good, generous, giving God. That the injustice of the world is not that anyone is condemned, but that any sinner is shown mercy. The great scandal is not that anyone is condemned for their rejection of God, but that God would give his son to rescue sinners like me. That's scandalous. And secondly, what really helps me is I rem- is to remember the purpose of election. Have you ever seen someone using the wrong tool for the job? Like someone trying to hammer in a screw? They should be using a screwdriver, so I'm told. I'd probably be that guy. Or someone grabbing a lawnmower and trying to do their hedge. Can you imagine that? That's the wrong tool. It's in the right family, but it's not the right tool. It's going to end badly, someone lifting up their lawnmower and smacking it across a hedge. The doctrine of election is actually meant to be really practical and life-shaping. It's meant to build faith as long as you hold intention, this idea of responsibility, and use it for its right purpose. Paul didn't write this stuff in Romans 9 to confuse people and make them tied up in knots. He wrote with a purpose. God's word is always trying to do something. Theology in the Bible, understanding things about God, is never meant to just make you smarter. It's meant to transform your life and it's always meant to be practical. If we preach sermons that are just intellectual that make you smarter sinners, we're failing. And so let's finish with three ways that election should shape our lives and then we'll do a few questions if you have any. Three ways election should shape your life, the way you can use it for your purpose, for the right purpose. Election should make us repent of both our pride and despair. If we deserve wrath and God shows us mercy, not because of anything in us, but because he's just that good, because he's merciful, then 
then we have no room for pride. We have nothing to boast about, nothing. Christians, we are no better than anyone else. We're just not. Christians should be the humblest people in the world, shouldn't we? But we're often not. We're often proud and arrogant. We're often really concerned about being right. We need, we need to repent. The only reason we're saved is because God is merciful, because he chose you in love, not because of anything in us. And the same is true if you're not a Christian. The Bible says we can't save ourselves, that our default mode is pride. And if you're not a believer tonight, I want you to see that God, God offers mercy to all who will humble themselves and ask for it. And so humble yourself. Recognize your need for mercy. Confess Jesus is Lord and trust in him. He promises to give salvation and forgiveness and eternal life to all who do. But it's not just pride we need to repent of, but I think also despair. If you're a Christian and if God chose you, you don't need to despair so much. I'm not saying don't be sad at the awful things that happen in the world. You should, that's right. But we don't need to despair because God chose us. The other passage I was very tempted to preach on, because I think it would have been a whole lot easier, and we're going to do it in Bible studies this week, is Ephesians 1. This is what Paul says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what are those spiritual blessings? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That should make your jaw drop. Before the creation of the world, God chose to show you mercy. It's like, it's like a groom on the wedding day who watches his bride walk down the aisle and his jaw drops and he says, I can't believe she chose me. She's so pretty and I'm hairy and I stink. Except God is infinitely more beautiful than any bride infinitely more glorious, and he chose you. Which means you don't need to despair about stuff in life, but rather be encouraged. Paul, Paul tells us about God's choosing of us, not so that we can tie ourselves in intellectual knots, but so we can feel the love of God. And so be encouraged. Let his choosing of you give you the humble confidence of a beloved child. Repent of despair because God chose you and loves you and is with you. If you're not a believer, he offers that love to you, a love like no other. So we need to repent of our pride and despair. Secondly, Christians, if God chooses people for salvation, then we should share the gospel with confidence. Some take this belief and they twist it and warp it and say, if you believe that God chooses people for salvation, then you don't have to do anything and God will just save whoever he wants. He'll just do it. Bang, saved. Doesn't need you, so do nothing. And it's true, God sometimes does that. Paul on the road to Damascus, bang, Jesus meets him, says, what are you doing? Puts him in time out for three days, changes his life. But even then he still uses Ananias to come and pray for him. See, Throughout the book of Acts, particularly in in Acts 18, Paul continues to preach boldly 
in Corinth because Jesus appears to him and says, I have many people in that city. Most scholars think that's Jesus saying, I've actually chosen people in this city to hear the gospel and you're the means of doing it, so stay there. And Romans 9 might be all about God's choosing of people, but Romans 10 says, how can people come to faith if they don't hear the gospel and how can they hear the gospel if no one tells them? It says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. This is the ancient world. No one's feet were beautiful. But if they were bringing the gospel, wow. Which means you and I should speak with confidence because it's not your power that saves anyone. It's the gospel that's God's power to save people. And maybe, just maybe, God has put you in your workplace or your school or your uni classroom or your family because you will be the means by which the gospel is shared with those whom God has chosen. So speak the gospel with confidence. Here's the last thing that believing in election should do. It should encourage us to persevere. Now, some of us are tempted to quit because life is hard. Faith is flickering. But if God chose you, he'll hold on to you. He won't let go. You know when you're choosing between two items to buy and you buy the cheaper item and it proves that you got what you paid for? You know that feeling of buyer's remorse where you think, I should have spent the extra 20 bucks to get the good thing, but I was being tight and I didn't? God doesn't have that feeling about you. He's not, he doesn't have buyer's remorse about you. He chose you knowing exactly who you would be and what you would do and how many times you would fail him and he still loves you and he'll hold on to you. That God chose you knowing exactly what you would be like and all the dumb things that we would do, that God chose us is meant to encourage us to keep going, to keep trusting him. That engagement ring I bought, Nat, it it was a symbol of love. My, My prayer is that we'll see the beauty of election, that in love, because God is good, he chooses people for salvation. He offers life to all and mercy to all. And that should humble us and lift us up all at the same time. It should prompt us to speak so that all may hear and respond. And it should give us hope because the one who chose us is going to hold us to the very end. I want to pray. Mikey might have had some questions. He's going to come up and ask him. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see the diamond of salvation sparkle a little tonight as we look at election. Help us to see how amazing it is that you chose anyone for salvation, let alone us. May it humble us and lift us up. May it encourage us to speak the gospel. And may it help us to persevere. Thanks that you you hold on to us. Where there's confusion, may there be clarity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.